Welcome to Quantum Business Insights, emerging perspectives on people, process, and profits. Your host is Olivia Parr-Rood. In today's fast-paced, high-tech global economy, the business landscape is constantly evolving. To be successful, companies must continually adapt as well as identify and exploit new opportunities. Now, here is the host of Quantum Business Insights, Olivia Parr-Rood. Hi, Olivia here, and welcome to Quantum Business Insights, where each week we explore new perspectives on the changing nature of business with thought leaders from around the world, and with a special emphasis on what I feel is our most valuable asset, our human capital. Today, I'm thrilled to have as my guest, Leslie Pratch. We'll be discussing the power of active coping. But before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about Leslie. As a clinical psychologist with an MBA from the University of Chicago, Leslie brings a unique combination of skills and experience to assessing executives. While she was in graduate school for psychology, she led research into a psychological model for predicting leadership performance. And this work became the basis of her PhD dissertation at Northwestern and more. To better understand the business world, she went on to earn her MBA from the University of Chicago focusing on two areas about which she knew next to nothing before the school, and that was strategy and finance. She's continued to conduct research and publish in the areas of personality and leadership. Since 1998, she's been earning her living as a psychologist, advising private equity investors, boards of directors, and senior executives on both publicly and privately held companies. In this capacity, She has conducted in-depth assessments of over 400 existing or potential CEOs or other top management. So you can see why I wanted to have Leslie on my show. She brings together my two passions, leadership and predictive modeling. So Leslie, welcome to Quantum Business Insights. Thank you, Olivia. Great to be here. Great. So as we all know, the corporate world is highly volatile due to advances in technology, globalization, the influx of big data, and more. And leaders are really being tested. If you look at the wake of the 2008 economic meltdown, many of us were asking questions that Leslie has been exploring for years, like, is it possible to predict which executives are potential time bombs? For example, could we learn to tell if a young Warren Buffett is different from just a merely competent investment banker, or to help executives understand how some aspects of their personality could adversely affect their performance at work? And if so, which awareness might help them modify their behavior? Leslie believes that it's possible to make such predictions with a fair degree of accuracy, and she shares how she does this in her forthcoming book, Looks Good on Paper. So we'll be mentioning that again, that this book is coming out um, June 1st, and it's going to take us take you through all of these interesting details. So today, Leslie will focus on a psychological quality called active coping, which lies at the core of her model. So let me, Leslie, let me ask you, how do you frame the issue of predictive, predicting leadership performance? And what, with that, how do you assess executives? And talk a little bit about active coping. Sure, Olivia, those are great questions. And let me take them as a whole. First, effective leaders must meet challenges and resolve them productively day after day. They must constantly adapt to the unforeseen and must mobilize, coordinate, and direct others. But when hiring executives, how do you know which candidates will possess such qualities? 
when they all look good on paper, how do you make a choice? How do you get past the resume to perceive the person and, most important, to predict the performance? Let me give you some specific examples. Who would have predicted from the 20-year tenure of David Patrick at Schwab that he would fail so miserably as the hand-picked groom successor to founder Charles Schwab? Or similarly, that Doug Ivester at Coke would fail when he followed same CEO Roberto Goizeta? How can organizations avoid hiring charismatic yet ultimately value-destroying leaders like Jeff Kimber at Pfizer? An executive's failure adversely affects many individuals, organizations, and communities. The company loses money. Firing an executive may incur legal and severance fees, the cost of recruiting and developing a replacement, and losses from interrupted schedules or abandoned projects. Dismissing an executive can cause upheaval and chaos among the company's employees. As productivity drops, the effects may trickle down to the company's clients or suppliers, eventually hurting surrounding communities. Our economy tightly weaves together many seemingly unconnected business sectors, to help avoid the adverse effects of poor leadership and develop the theory of active coping. Let me tell you a bit about, about the theory. Um, numbers of boards of directors who are charged with appointing CEOs and approving other officers cannot rely on static models for selecting executives that assume circumstantial stability. This is because the circumstances surrounding companies change over time frequently in ways that are hard to predict. When circumstances change unpredictably, an executive's latent strengths or untested weaknesses emerge. And although traditional selection criteria based on past performance and achievement are indispensable, on their own, they do not adequately predict how a high-achieving executive will handle new, unanticipated crises or more generally how anybody would perform in a new leadership role, for example, as a CEO and not just as a COO. Hmm. A depth psychological assessment, though it's not fully predictive, can close this gap significantly. And what this assessment adds is insight into the psychological qualities that distinguish one high flyer from another. Hmm. I designed my methodology, my assessment methodology, specifically to predict how well a candidate is likely to cope with unexpected and unanticipated circumstances to which past performance and personality are not always a good guide. And because leadership has long-term implications, my focus is on making long-term predictions. I look at coping not as a one-time effort, but as a style of functioning and active coping as a constant state of readiness that supports healthy growth and adaptation over the course of a person's life. So it's a developmental construct. So, in everyday terms, what is active coping? I think even if you've never heard that term before, and most of you probably haven't, you know it when you see it. When a person always seems prepared and quickly recovers from any setback, that's active coping. When a person earns the trust of friends and colleagues by refusing to take unfair advantage of others, refuses to let others take unfair advantage of her, that is active coping. When a person has a vision and self-confidence to rise above business as usual when necessary, that is active coping. When a person is open to the people around him, listens to bad as well as good news, and is aware of his own motivations, strengths, and shortcomings, that is active coping. Fascinating. So, the usually 
to many people, the word cope has negative connotations of barely scraping by. And I want to emphasize that I use it quite differently to refer to a sense of mastery and overall positive orientation to life. Individuals can learn to master themselves and the circumstances that surround them by taking an active coping stance toward the world, or they can cope passively, allowing themselves to be defined by their circumstances and enslaved by their personal needs. So, to assess active coping um, and to predict leadership, I utilize a depth psychological approach. Um, so just as investors evaluate a company to understand the underlying basis for its earnings growth, I assess an executive to explain and predict individual performance. Each situation is unique. And my assessments consist of interviews with the individuals assessed and various psychological tests. Some of these get at nonverbal reasoning, while others get at aspects of motivation and behavior. But ultimately, I try to get at two factors, the core integrity of the executive in the context of an assessment of his or her whole personality and the executive's act of coping under the widest possible range of conditions and challenges. Let me take you to, through four assumptions about personality that I make in an in, in-depth psychological assessment approach. One, personality is fundamentally a theoretical construct. We use it to explain how people think, feel, and act. We characterize personality in shorthand terms. Steve is warm and empathic, Christina abrasive. But such characterizations touch on only a few of the many parts that go into the makeup of the whole personality, a rich and complex entity that can be rigorously and scientifically assessed. Two, the effects of personality on decision-making can be predicted. With psychotherapy, certain aspects of personality can change. Three, our personalities are a function of our individual history, especially our childhood. This limits the extent to which we can change. And four, our personalities operate at different levels of conscious awareness. Each level affects how we think, feel, and act in ways that may not be obvious or easily measured. So think of personality as an iceberg. What's above the surface is what's conscious. What's below the surface is what's unconscious. In between is what's pre-conscious. Much of our behavior is driven by what's below the surface, by the unconscious parts we don't see or understand. What goes on at an unconscious level influences what goes on at a conscious level, where we believe we have control. Yet, sometimes we discover that we don't have complete control, and this explains why we may do surprising things for reasons we don't understand, which may not be in our best interests. We have deeper motives. We have hidden fears and wishes. The more aware we become of these unconscious dimensions of our personality, the more likely we can master them. This mastery is important if we're to behave with appropriate flexibility and strength, the hallmarks of active coping. The better we cope, the greater our chances of being successful. So let me tell you more about the concept and construct of active coping. The dictionary definition of coping is commonly to deal with or contend with difficulties. I use the term to refer to a style of functioning and overall approach to dealing with life. 
it's like a car. We can manage to get where we need to go if we're driving an ordinary, inexpensive car, and we can make it through life with a less than optimal coping style. But driving a car with superb engineering is crucial if we're racing in the Indianapolis 500. And we'll get us farther, faster, with less likelihood of accident or breakdown in other situations. A strong framework of coping does exactly the same thing. Well, that's a great analogy because I can see the the contrast. And as leaders, we do need to have all those. It's like riding, (laughs) driving in the... Indianapolis 500, um, as far as the expected level of performance. Um, And I I love your comments about doing things that we don't understand why we did them. So I'm sure many of my listeners have had the experience of saying, like, where did that come from? Or why did I say that? So that's great. So really active coping. Oh, go ahead. Well, those experiences of why did I say that or why did that happen, it's a clue to their there's more going on in the personality than meets the eye. And the more aware we become of those hidden parts of ourselves, the more we can master them. So, so they're basically in there, but yeah. Right. So they're really under the surface, like unconscious or subconscious. <clears throat> so the active coping really does help us handle bumps and curves in the road of life. Yeah. All human beings encounter difficulties on a daily basis, whether they're internal to the self or external in our environments. We have intricate internal landscapes filled with values, dreams, desires, ideals. Some of these are in conflict and some of them are compatible. But coping is how we reconcile and express these many parts of ourselves, endeavoring to bring into balance our internal needs with the external demands of the environment. Mm-hmm. To achieve our goals, we all have to make an effort. We usually have to solve problems and overcome obstacles. Some of these are created by our surroundings, some by other people, and some by who we are. Encountering obstacles creates stress. When we take action, whether it's cognitive or behavioral, to reduce that stress, we are coping. Coping is part of the process of adapting to and even changing the environment. Hmm. Here's another example. When dealing with stress, a person can respond in one of four ways. The first is to identify the stress and remove it, maintaining, even improving physical and emotional health. The second is to identify and tolerate the stress without changing it, keeping a status quo but not growing. The third is to defend against the stress by denying it, distorting the perception of it, or reacting to it in an unrealistic manner. And the fourth is to suffer a complete breakdown in functioning. The first response, identifying the stress and removing it, uh, simultaneously maintaining or improving physical and emotional health, is active coping. The second response, merely tolerating the stress without changing and without growing, is passive coping. The third response is neurotic defensive coping, and the fourth response accompanies personality disintegration. So clearly active coping is the healthiest response to a stressful situation and the one most likely to lead to a a successful resolution of it. Mm -hmm. So it really identifies these things we've all seen before. Yeah. Yeah, and it 
to link it to everyday conceptions of coping with stress and the task we have as human beings to deal with um, deal with obstacles in order to achieve our goals. So let me give you conceptual and operational definitions of active coping um, and how how coping particularly relates to leadership. So conceptually, the definition of active coping is the readiness, willingness, and ability to adapt resourcefully and effectively to novel and changing conditions. It's a stable, albeit complex, psychological orientation across time and circumstance, a style of functioning, a continuous seeking for the most effective path through life. It comes into play in the now at each moment of decision or challenge. The psychological ammunition that active coping provides is extremely useful when determining the best way to respond to a situation that was not or could not be anticipated. In terms of concrete operational behaviors, executives who are passive active copers strive to achieve personal aims and overcome difficulties rather than passively retreat or become overwhelmed. Active copers feed on experience, incorporating what they've learned into their psychological systems, making themselves increasingly capable of tolerating uncertainty and devising new strategies for growth. When they fail, they learn why and respond more effectively the next time. Rather than hide from constructive criticism, they seek it out as useful advice. This kind of openness increases their effectiveness as leaders and, more generally, in life. Mm. Whereas active coping seeks to confront and resolve, passive coping is reactive and avoidant. Passive coping is refusing to tolerate the full tension that a situation imposes, for instance, reacting before the facts are sufficiently understood. Passive coping is retreating from complexity, tuning out information, and resisting change. It's dealing with minor problems in order to avoid the anxiety of confronting major problems. It's rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Mm, Familiar signs of passive coping, yeah, in executives, and I think everyone can relate to this at some point in their their lives, dithering, retreating into minutiae, paralysis in the face of major threats, uncharacteristic outbursts of rage, and over-control of subordinates. Mm. So active coping is what we expect of leaders, the ability to learn, adapt, improvise, mobilize, and overcome conflicts. Executives who are passive copers are far less likely to be effective leaders. So it seems like perhaps many years ago, leaders didn't have to have some such great active coping skills because there wasn't the amount of change and that kind of controlling leadership style was uh, effect, more effective in that they weren't dealing with all the complexity. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that was sort of at the heart of my, my original thesis was that, you know, the world is, is changing at a faster and faster rate, and how do you predict leadership in rapidly changing conditions? So you need, you need to understand the psychological quality that gives rise the ability to evolve new skills for coping with change in order to predict leadership effectiveness because circumstances surrounding companies with which its leaders will have to contend are constantly changing. 
which is why I say you cannot rely on static models that assume circumstantial stability. Environment is always changing. And therefore, I look to the, the capacity, the psychological capacity to cope with novel and complex situations. Great. Well, we're just up on a break, and I, I'm just enjoying this so much. When we come back, I'd love to hear about some other qualities that um, determine a leader's effectiveness. But we do need to take a break, so I just want to reintroduce my guest is Leslie Pratch. And you can learn more about Leslie at www.pratchco.com. That's P-R-A-T-C-H-C-O.com. Her book will be out June 1st, Looks Good on Paper, question mark at the end of the title, published by Columbia University Press. And I just want to let everyone know, too, that today is an introduction to the theory and construct of active coping as it relates to predicting leadership performance. We're going to do subsequent interviews that will dig down more into how we can develop this within ourselves and do, look at different coping styles using real-life examples of executives and leaders and illustrate the four elements of active coping, which are integrity, psychological autonomy, integrative capacity, and catalytic coping. With, uh, big examples and we'll be getting into more of that um, during this show but in the future shows we'll really dig in and and see if we can help identify these within ourselves so we will be right back in a few minutes When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Engage with Andy Bush takes you inside the mind of a top global market and public policy analyst who has been featured regularly on CNBC, Yahoo Finance, and numerous radio and television programs. Our program will bring you guests and stories from the top of the political and business worlds. Each show includes Andy's point of view roundup and what it means for you at home. Life's complicated. Let Andy help you figure it out. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you, like most Americans, spend the majority of your life at work? Are you making it the joy that it deserves to be, or are you feeling drained and unfocused? Tune in to A Great Place to Work with hosts Kurt Kaufman and Dr. Kathy Sorensen. Your hosts have more than 30 years of experience in workplace consulting and are ready to bring you the secrets and success stories of businesses who are making their business a great place to work. Listen every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and enjoy a better workplace and a better life. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr-Rood. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show at oliviagroup.com. That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back to Quantum Business Insights. Hi, Olivia here, and I'm with my guest, Leslie Pratch of Pratch Co. And we are talking about active coping as being a leading skill in predicting 
or a competency in predicting leadership performance. And um, before the break, we went into a lot of the different aspects of that. So I'd like to know, Leslie, are there other qualities besides coping that determines a leader's effectiveness? Yeah, um, many qualities determine a leader's effectiveness, but my formal model builds on the proposition that a leader's motivational orientation and specific knowledge, skills, and abilities, KSAs, are necessary and sufficient determinants of leadership effectiveness. But the utility of these characteristics depends on the situation and even more on the underlying psychological stability and openness to change inherent in active coping. So conceptualize active coping as a kind of prime mover of more observable qualities that contribute to effective leadership. And if if we are conceptualizing active coping as an attribute of a psychologically healthy personality system, that means that the activity is not always overt and directly observable. Sometimes it takes place internally in decisions made, visions developed, and conflicting drives resolved. However, an active coping stance gives rise to certain observable traits and skills. These include awareness. Active copers are able to see reality, including their own needs, capabilities, and limitations. Courage. Yeah. I was just going to say, so that's really self-awareness as part of that is what you're saying. It's like awareness outside, but also really good self-awareness. And there's that constant integration, that balancing of internal, internal and external always in the theory of active coping because we have to adapt to the external world in order to, <laughs> to survive. Um, but we also need to meet our internal needs, both biological and needs for self-esteem and meaning. Those are internal internal demands, and we have to bring the two into balance. And when we do that, that's active coping. Thanks. Other, other uh, observable traits and skills that relate to active coping are resiliency and toughness and the ability to learn from experience. And I want to emphasize that active copers are human we make mistakes. Life's too complicated to be able to anticipate every possible contingency. But active copers regroup and recover setbacks. Hmm. Another trait is energy, fortitude, the willingness to persevere. Active copers can summon the energy and continue to move forward even under the most trying circumstances. Mm-hmm. Another trait is re- resourcefulness. Um, and the anthropologist Levi Strauss called this bricolage. Active copers invent solutions to problems by creatively pulling together the resources they have at hand or by developing new resources. Mm. Another trait is decisiveness. Active coping gives a person the fortitude to handle conflicts among competing goals. Making a choice means giving up an alternative. Active copers mourn that loss and move on. And finally, executing a plan. Active coping involves planning. Active copers anticipate, strategize, and weigh the risks of potential action. Then they act. Active coping combines introspection and action. There's a cognitive and a behavioral component. Hmm. Interesting. And you mentioned um, 
active copers mourn the loss and move on. And I think mourning the loss is something that a lot of people avoid because it's difficult, but it's, you know, I think it's a way of honoring what's happened. And it, as long as we're learning from it, it doesn't have to be something right. that is negative. So, but I see many of these skills and traits overlap. For example, you have to be aware of the problem before you can make a plan to overcome it. In order to make a good plan, you have to be resourceful. In order to execute a plan, you need courage. Exactly. So because active coping is a characteristic of the whole personal, structural, psychological attribute, its elements are not traits or skills in the narrow, common definition of those terms. So you see that kind of complexity and interconnectedness as you think about your own coping. And that's one of the reasons why I emphasize the importance of assessing the whole person, a full assessment of the candidate, the position, and the organization to understand that dynamic when making predictions about leadership performance. So what do you, you emphasize full assessment. What do you mean by full assessment? I mean a, a global holistic approach to um, assessing personality and a fit of the candidate with the role. And to do that, I examine five areas. Um, These areas may seem distinct, but they too overlap and interact. And that's why I mean they're part of a global holistic approach. So the first area that I look at is business culture. Some highly capable executives are better suited for larger corporate environments. Others function best only as long as the firm remains under a certain size. So understanding the business and managerial environment in which an executive is expected to perform is necessary before making predictions regarding his leadership in that context. Mm. Factors I consider include the competition, corporate strategy, and organizational culture. The second area in my assessment strategy is intelligence, work skills, and experience. An executive has to have the necessary functional skills and cognitive capability in order to perform the work of the role. Generally, this dimension reveals itself on resumes and in interviews and reference checks. That's usually where assessments of executives end. The third area, yeah, the third area that I examine is development. Look at past development and the current developmental context of the individual. Understanding an executive's past helps me to articulate his or her public and private motivations and capabilities. Understanding an executive's current developmental needs, for example, possible midlife concerns, thoughts of ultimate retirement, enhances the overall assessment of motivational priorities as these bear on predicting the quality of his leadership. Hmm. The fourth area is is the executive's personal life. So I want to know how the executive handles non-business aspects of life that affect performance at work. Family, leisure, religious beliefs, for example. How does a person balance these aspects of life with work? And what are the sustaining relationships and support systems outside of work? Hmm, And finally, the fifth area, yeah, is, is personality structure and dynamics. Thinking back to that iceberg metaphor again, I look at different levels and functions of personality, conscious and unconscious, 
including motives, coping style, interpersonal relatedness, and integrity. And by taking a sophisticated look of personality, I'm better able to determine the individual's potential to carry out work-related responsibilities. So this assessment strategy marries two normally distinct ways of evaluating executives. It combines the traditional methods emphasizing an executive's industry knowledge and functional expertise with clinical psychological methods and models that explore less easily observed dimensions of personality that bear on the executive's ability to perform as required. Hmm. So what do you mean by and how do you assess these less easily observed dimensions of personality? My key to making accurate predictions is to assess personality structure and dynamics. And this was the fifth area in my assessment strategy, particularly coping and integrity. This requires going beyond interview and self-report methods like the Myers-Briggs. Why? Interviews, like all self-report methods, permit canned or rehearsed responses. They're relatively structured. The questions are obvious, transparent, and easily manipulated. Most executives know what to conceal and what to reveal about themselves, their experiences, and the depth of their commitment. They will reveal, indeed, they will highlight what makes them look good and conceal what does not. In my line of work, we call this faking good. For example, in a job interview, we may claim to be persistent and hardworking when what we really are is stubborn. In presenting ourselves, we put a spin on the stories we tell. We make our stubbornness sound like worthwhile persistence. And this is a classic example of faking good. Even the most astute interviewer will have trouble distinguishing persistence from stubbornness. To get around the faking good problem, I also use projective techniques. You may have encountered them during your own career. One example is to supply the words to finish a sentence. Another is to tell stories to describe a series of pictures. Projective techniques represent vague, ambiguous stimuli. By providing little structure to guide the response, they reveal aspects of psychological functioning related to underlying dimensions of personality that are inaccessible using objective techniques. So let me just make sure I understand this. So you might give them a photograph or or a picture of something, and you ask them to describe it, and from that you can tell things about their personality? Yeah, that technique is called... uh, the thematic app perception test, it, it's um, part of the traditional um, battery of psychological tests that are used in a, um, an in-depth personality assessment. And the, there are a series of black and white um, drawings or illustrations or pictures that are they're designed to elicit paradigmatic themes in human development. But... The, the stimuli, the cards themselves, are, are vague. They can be interpreted in any number of different ways. So the first card is a picture of a boy with, with a violin, and the violin is on a piece of sheet music, and, you know, the, express, the expression on his face, you can't tell. Um, mm-hmm. In order to interpret the stimuli, the card, is to project yourself into the story oh. and people don't understand this is what I mean it's it's an apperception it's not an object that's there that, that everyone comes to a universal agreement that this is mm-hmm. the reality of that object this is its facticity no it's an apperception it's how we construe it we imbue it with meaning and so 
I look at, at how is the story told? What are the themes? Um, is there, are there conflicts articulated? Are there conflicts resolved? Are other people introduced? What are the quality of relationships among those people? Um, does the story have a positive, an optimistic ending, or a passive ending? Do the characters cope? Um, and, and then, because there are different cards that pull for different themes in human development, I look at achievement, um, the separation and individuation from the individual family, uh, younger generation, older generation relations, um, heterosexual relations, ambition, aggression, these, hmm. these basic motives and developmental issues that every, every human being has to contend with. So those, that, that's the projective storytelling technique. And hmm. in the process of dealing with the, telling the stories, the executive simply asks, make up a story with a beginning, middle, and end. Tell me what the characters are doing, thinking, and feeling. It can be as long or as short as you like. They have no idea what they're revealing about themselves. And so it's a non-threatening, non-invasive way of uncovering a great deal about about the individual. And that level of behavior allows me to tie together all the different um, behaviors elicited by the other aspects of the personality assessment in order to um, develop a portrait of the whole person. Oh, that's fascinating. <clears throat> so we're just about up on a break. And um, when we come back, I'd love to hear... Um, some of the other techniques that you use. Uh, so just to remind everybody, my guest today is Leslie Pratch, and she's coming out with a book in June called Looks Good on Paper, published by Columbia University Press. You can learn more about Leslie at Pratchco.com. And again, <clears throat> this is an interview uh, that is going to lead to subsequent in-depth interviews. And uh, I think it's just a very rich conversation. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Does your business, like many, face obstacles to becoming successful? Would you love to have an open forum of entrepreneurial ideas and best practices brought to you each week? Tune in for The Second Stage with hosts Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick. We'll spotlight entrepreneurs and growing companies that are creating a vibrant economic base, as well as addressing some of the obstacles that could be standing in the way of your success. Listen Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr Rood. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show at OliviaGroup.com. 
That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back to Quantum Business Insights. Hi, I'm here, Olivia, and I'm with Leslie Pratch. We're talking about active coping as a way of predicting leadership performance. So before the break, we were talking about some of the ways other than direct active coping, but some less easily observed dimensions of personality. And Leslie mentioned looking, having a candidate look at a photograph or a picture of something and telling a story around it and how that just reveals a lot of perhaps even unconscious aspects of one's personality. So what are some other techniques for assessing that coping style? Yeah, well, one technique designed to assess active coping asks the respondent to complete a series of incomplete sentences. Mm -hmm. Um, So even executives who claim to be no-nonsense, take-charge leaders may find it difficult, if not impossible, to complete certain stems. For example, when she fails in her work. So take Mm. a minute and think how you would respond. Interesting, yeah. (laughs) That's That's powerful. It's a tough one. So completing the STEM requires the mobilization of energy, orientation of attention, and commitment to make a response that initiates the process of coping. Mm -hmm. If the respondent does not complete the STEM, then she's refused to cope with the task. She's demonstrated passive coping. So, so each sentence then provides a direct measure of coping. So I might maybe I might say when she failed in her work, she always learned something from it. That might be an a example of a good coping. Coping, yeah. Okay. Right. But someone might say when she failed in her work, she gave up. Mm-hmm. Or someone might say when she failed in her work. Um, she never failed. So that, that would <laughs> be a, a breakdown. I mean, you're not dealing with the reality of the stimulus, which is failure. Right. So, Interesting. So there's a very rigorous scoring system for scoring responses. Mm-hmm. So the, the storytelling technique and the sentence completion technique show how projective techniques get at underlying behaviors in ways that allow me to make inferences about how an individual will function under greater stress. They tap aspects of personality that most of us don't know or want to reveal. Desires, fears, and conflicts that are disavowed or unconscious. So, executives who display active coping in structured situations, then hearkening back to your, you know, the traditional hierarchical bureaucratic model of leadership that you mentioned, Olivia, mm-hmm. um, that kind of highly structured, routinized, predictable situation may not be active copers at the deeper levels assessed by projective techniques. Here they may be passive copers. So when the measures on different levels of personality and, and technique ranging from objective, structured personality assessment technique to projective, unstructured, the storytelling projective technique, when the measures on different levels disagree, a red flag goes up. An executive may exhibit active coping on the surface, but the projective measures indicate he's anything but. Under stress, this discrepancy will resolve itself in the direction of the underlying passivity, compromising decision-making in real life. 
What this means is that desires, fears, and conflicts that are beyond conscious control nevertheless drive and shape workplace functioning. Under stress, when our defenses may weaken, these warded-off parts of self are prone to appear. If an executive's active coping rests upon passive coping, then the organization runs the risk of his demonstrating passive coping at a time the business can least afford it. Wow. So how did you develop your psychological model of leadership? Well, I studied both the theories behind the concept of active coping and the qualities required for effective leadership. I thought about what effective leaders did, felt, and thought, why they behaved as they did, why they made the decisions they made, and why those actions were effective or not. I then synthesized these thoughts and theories to create my personal definition of effective leadership. Leadership is effective when it influences the actions of followers towards the achievement of the goals of the group or organization. Hmm. That's the definition of effective leadership. That's what we're trying to predict. I like that. Then working, yeah, working with that definition, then I identified four interconnected parts, four elements of the active coping style that seem necessary to engender and sustain effective leadership. And these are integrity, psychological autonomy, integrative capacity, and catalytic coping. So let's look at the four elements. Integrity is the first element. Um, it, it depends on the consistency of your behavior in accordance with your values and ideals. Why is it important for leadership? leadership leaders who demonstrate integrity earn the trust of their followers, their superiors, and the community. This trust allows them to function more efficiently because they don't have to spend a long time getting acceptance and approval for each action they take. Mm-hmm. Lack of integrity causes leaders to be erratic because they're not strongly connected to a secure or consistent system of values. They're unreliable leaders, often favoring their personal whims over the interests of others, and they may damage their organizations or their communities by their selfish actions. The second element is psychological autonomy. It involves the ability to recognize and respect the aims and feelings of others while purposely striving to achieve a goal. It's the ability to make and impose choices on the world, the opposite of groupthink. Psychological autonomy gives a person the freedom to choose the most effective course of action. Leaders who are high on psychological autonomy can respectfully disagree with their followers, their colleagues, and authority figures. They have the confidence to take an unpopular but necessary action and stand firm against doubt and disapproval. Can I just make a point that it seems like confidence is a real underlying theme throughout all of this, that perhaps those with the best self-confidence can cope more easily. Right, but it's a self-confidence born of both eyes being open and a high, high integrity as opposed mm. to the grandiosity or narcissism that's disconnected from the needs of others or the realities of the external world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yes, self-confidence and psychological autonomy mm-hmm. are, are really important elements of leadership effectiveness. And so I'm sure you can think of, yeah, go on. I was just going to say, um, talk about, about the converse of that. 
But if you want to give an example, go ahead. Sure. It's capitulating to pressures from subordinates, peers, and superiors requiring the safety of consensus, mm. doing, complying with external demands, or compulsively capitulating to internal demands. It's, it, the active copers transcend external and internal pressures to be able to choose the most effective course of action. But they don't ignore those pressures. They take them into consideration. They're just not um, slaves to them. I see. So then the third element is integrative capacity. Integrative capacity is an ingrained ability developed through practice of drawing together diverse elements of a complex situation into a coherent pattern. Mm. So it is literally the capacity to integrate information from yourself and surroundings into a new and greater understanding of the tapestry of life. Leaders who are strong in integrated capacity are aware of their emotions and motivations as well as their weaknesses. They have open minds accepting input from all sources. Then they put together what they know about themselves with the realities of their situation to create a deep understanding of possibilities. So you see how integrated capacity relates to psychological autonomy. And when you're talking about this, I would love to see this a test given to people who are leading countries, for example. Be very powerful. Yeah. Yes, it's so important. Uh, we can talk about that in subsequent um, in subsequent interviews. I'd love to. So, so what about... Between, well, intelligence and foresight and the ability to see into the future, the complexity of cognitive processing and, and self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, but the converse of a strong integrative capacity is lack of integrative capacity. So people who are weak in integrative capacity have a narrow focus, ignoring information that doesn't fit into their limited worldview. Uh, they may have lim- little awareness of their own motives and states of mind and hence take to... Uh, don't take into account the motivations of others. Uh, They lack an understanding of mutuality. They deal with events one at a time, blind to the connections between them, and unable to extrapolate into the future. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth element um, is catalytic coping. It's the ability to invent creative, effective solutions to problems and then curate them out. It's the most overt expression of active coping, the easiest to observe and measure. Going back to that sentence, completion technique, um, a stem that would assess act of catalytic coping would be, um, well, when she failed in her work, what did she do? <laughs> she learned mm-hmm. and did better the next time. Um, mm-hmm. The leaders who are strong in catalytic coping always seem to have thought out several options to resolve each problem. If there is an option, they create them. Creating options is extremely important. Then Mm. they develop detailed plans and execute them. And that does not mean they're rigid. If conditions change and the plan ceases to be effective, catalytic copers immediately rethink their options and adjust the plan. I would even think they they might figure out a few plans just in case one fails and they don't want to lose the time. So... That's fascinating. Exactly. So that's the planning element. And leaders who are weak at catalytic coping do not plan ahead. 
um, if they come up with a plan, it often lacks depth or creativity, and they stick to it, whether it suits the current conditions or not. Um, they seem lost when faced with unusual or difficult conditions and may fail to take timely action or any action at all. So this is the, the paralysis in the face of threats mm-hmm. and inability well, to cope with with change or new or um, complex situations. Well, so this is so interesting. I hate to say we only have about three, two and a half minutes left. Can you um, just... As far as those coping skills, do they carry different weights in predictive leadership, predicting leadership? No. They're, again, back to active coping as a style of functioning. But the elements aren't entirely different factors. They're they're elements of a whole style of being. So let's take an analogy, bodily functioning. Do you assign relative weights to the circulatory, respiratory, digestive, neurological, endocrine systems, just to name a few, if any of these systems of of bodily functioning ceased to operate, the body would die. If Mm. it became dysfunctional, that dysfunction would generate symptoms within the system and possibly symptoms are malfunctioning in other systems. While each system operates differently and has its own characteristics, each is interrelated with the other systems as well as with the totality of the the meta-system, which in this analogy would be the body. So speaking directly about coping, the ultimate goal of successful adaptation and growth, which active coping gives you, depends on the operations and interactions of the four elemental coping functions. So basically you have to take in internal and external stimuli and make reality-oriented sense of them. That's integrative capacity. You have to be relatively free to derive possible strategies of response. That's psychological autonomy. You then have to execute those strategies. That's catalytic coping. And you must do all of this while remaining true to ethical and personal guidelines and needs. That's integrity and self-esteem. Dysfunctions in any one area of coping can generate maladaptive processes and outcomes in the areas, other areas of questions or across areas more generally as other areas try to respond and compensate. Wow. So I have so many more questions, but we are out of time. I really want to thank you for um, coming today and letting us well, learn about this. Me. Yeah. So My just pleasure. as a little, <laughs> you're welcome. Um, so I just want to kind of sum up that, you know, Leslie talked about it, that it's possible to predict at least much of the time how an individual will cope with unexpected challenges Central to her model is active coaching, coping, excuse me, active coping, which um, is the readiness, willingness, and ability to adapt resourcefully and effectively to novel and changing situations. So thank you again for being my guest today, I, and I look forward to the subsequent interviews. Um, thank you, Olivia. So, my pleasure. So next week, my guest will be Ken Beller, a thought leader, author, and president of Nearbridge Incorporated, a consulting firm that specializes in building intergenerational harmony. So their research reveals hidden factors that motivate people of different generations and provides practical ways to engage and empower employees and turn customers into raving fans. So you won't want to miss this. For a full description of this show and access to all past shows, please visit www 
www.quantumbusinessinsights.com. I'm your host, Olivia Parrud, saying thank you for tuning in to Quantum Business Insights and have a great week. Thank you for tuning in to Quantum Business Insights. Please join your host, Olivia Parr-Rood, again next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Enjoy your weekend, and we'll talk again next week.